Hello and welcome to How's the Water, our frequent podcast about books. Ciao, benvenuto a Come va la acqua, il nostro podcast sui libri. Come va? Oh, is that Italian? It was supposed to be, yes. <laughs> oh, well, let me guess. We're doing an Italian book today. Yes. Or should I say, C, which is Italian for yes. As you very well know, today we're looking at a novel called Left-Handed Dreams by Francesca Durante. Shall we talk a little about how we came to make an episode on this book? Yes. So um, essentially what we're doing right now is a series on European authors. And we wanted to do an episode on a female author and one that we didn't really know and hadn't read before. So um, as we, I mean, we're not Italian, so we can't speak for anyone Italian, but it's come to our attention that she's a very beloved uh, author in Italy. Mm. So yeah, we decided to go with this book, Left-Handed Dreams. It's more like a novella, really, I would say. It's yes. pretty short. Yeah, it's very short. And that was yeah. uh, part of the appeal, if I'm honest, because after we did uh, Independent People, which was quite a long, deep book, I wanted to try and try something like a little briefer. And uh, I'm glad, I'm very glad that we did. Yeah, it's only like 118 pages. I would say uh, it's quite deep, though. If we uh, After Independent People, if we wanted a breather, I don't think this was quite the book to pick, but it was it was fast to read. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, I think I don't think it was really, really challenging to read, but that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of ideas in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, a very nice um, philosophical piece of writing. I, I was yeah. very intellectual. Yes, yeah, but at the but, same time, it's quite light. Would you yeah. say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> I, think we, I wonder how many times we've contradicted ourselves in that. Like I know that. it's a weird little book, but it mm -hmm. was delightful to get through. Um, in just a, the span of a couple days. I say get through like it was arduous and it wasn't. It just had a lot of very interesting ideas in it. And we will get into those. Yeah, interest, interesting ideas. And I really like the main character as well. She was very, she was fascinating. Yeah, Francesca Durante did a great job at just really making her a, a fully like fleshed out, developed person with her daily routine and getting into her past and her hopes and her fears and mm. it was just really nice nice to get into yeah that. yeah definitely yeah she's um quirky isn't she but mm -hmm. not uh, but not irksome i would say no she was uh you know relatable right so you, you said a little bit about the author francesco delantida should i do a very very quick biography of her Okay, so uh, she was born on January the 2nd, 1935 in Genoa, and she graduated from the University of Pisa with a law degree. She started to write in the 1970s. Her first book, La Bambina, The Child, was published in 1976. Uh, this is a book which draws on her childhood, and since then her published works have included Piazza Mia Bella Piazza, My Beautiful Square, La Casa Sul Lago della Luna, the House on the Lake of the Moon, Effetti Personali, Personal Effects, and Sogni Mancini, Left-Handed Dreams, uh, which the book we're looking at today, which was published in 2000. How, how was my 
Italiano there. I was just going to say, could you speak in Italian for the rest of the podcast now? Uh, could no. you learn Italian, come back and just do this podcast in Italian? That's really good. That <laughs> the answer to that question is no, which in uh, Italian is no. Oh, <laughs> so, okay. Yeah, no, I'm not doing that. So, uh, but I tried my best. <laughs> you did. That's all yeah. I ask of you for this podcast. Good. So thanks. Good. Good. That's all we can do. Would you like to begin our look at the plot of Left-Handed Dreams or Sogni Mancini? Yes. Grazie mille, Gary. Prego. <laughs> Martina Satriano is a 42-year-old Italian woman living in New York City. As the story begins, she describes flying back to Italy for the funeral of her mother. There, she reflects on the nature of her relationships with her mother, her sister, old neighbors and family friends. And she concludes that her birth country has changed too much for her to feel connected to it anymore. Though she examines her childhood with a bittersweet nostalgia. In particular, we learn how her father, a progressive liberal and an enormous influence on her, passed away in an accident and how she and her mother sold the family farm and went to work as cooks to make a living. She recalls being a young teenager and her innocent yet passionate romance with a local boy, Costantino, Costantino, which ended when he moved with his family to America. And the intensity and nature of that love was never matched, even in adulthood, when she got married. All of this takes place in like the first five pages of this book by the way <laughs> yeah but it's but it's recalled a lot isn't it as the book goes mm -hmm. on yeah, yeah. She, goes back, she goes back to this relationship a lot even though she was very young when it happened yeah yeah like 13 or 14 and it kind of went through her teenage years a little bit but uh yeah so we'll we'll that'll be important we'll get back to that later yeah we also come to find out that Martina does things with her hands in an unusual way. She holds things awkwardly or backwards, and it leads her to suspect that she may have been born left-handed and that her mother, a peasant who her sister describes as the quintessence of discipline and conformism, uh, trained her as a child to use her right hand. She latches onto this idea as she flies back to Manhattan, and in this we introduce the machine and a project that has been two years in the making. Mm. The machine is what she calls the device she uses to record her dreams every morning. It's basically just a, a recording device connected to a coffee machine and a toaster, right? I don't, I didn't <laughs> quite understand the machine or what yeah. it did. Um, it, it was a way of recording her dreams, but I couldn't, yeah, was she recording herself when she dreamed or was she just talking about her dreams in the morning? Well, I will um, tell you. Upon her waking, it plays sounds, which is currently an Aboriginal dirigidoo, didgeridoo. 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 That puts her into a meditative state and then captures her retelling her dreams from the night before. She theorizes that perhaps dream states are as real as our waking reality and is interested in the possibility of experimenting with virtual reality to prove the idea of multiple consciousnesses, which is heavy. This ties in with her newfound questions that maybe being born left-handed brings, like, 
if she had never been trained out of this natural and instinctive trait, would she have fundamentally been a different person? Would she have been more natural, more confident, less alone? Would she have stayed in Italy? Would her first marriage have worked? Would she have gotten married to the wrong man in the first place? And moreover, does her left-handed self still exist stifled within her? So this is a theme that is repeated throughout the book. And I'd like to ask you a question now. Okay, go ahead. I'm all ears. Uh, so you have all of this stuff to unpack with her, you know, with her childhood and her migration to the United States and this new possibly left-handed identity here. What do you think makes up multiple identities in a person? Do you mean what what do they consist of or or do they exist both i guess like can um, uh, multiple identities exist in the same person and what makes up those different selves yeah i, th I think definitely there are multiple identities in people um you quite often hear people well very very often hear people sort of describe themselves don't you i'm a i'm a quiet person i'm um, I'm a generous person, but that's not that can't be true all the time. You know, mm -hmm. you can't be you can't be a quiet person all the time, can you? I mean, I guess some people are, but I would say most people are quiet when the occasion or their mood kind of determines it. And I, I guess that's what makes up multiple identities. It's because it's a combination, isn't it, of your of your upbringing, which is uh -huh. suggested here, the left handed element, your mood. I'm definitely a different person depending on my mood. I think. Uh -huh. And I would say I even th sometimes think or believe different things depending on my mood. I would say, like, broadly speaking, I'm quite a left-wing liberal person. But, you know, <laughs> there might be a – there's probably is a right-wing guy in there trying to get out. And I think maybe if I'm in a bad mood, sometimes he, he, he comes out, I think. So I think that's there. And also I, I think as well people sort of – like when someone gets accused of racism, like a, a football player or a football manager or something – they'll, they'll defend, defend themselves by saying, well, I'm not a racist. So they'll oh. identify themselves as a non-racist. And then that's almost like saying, I'm not a racist, so I don't do racism. But you think, well, you can still be someone who, broadly speaking, isn't a racist, but do racism and say racist things, I think. Uh -huh. so, and participate in the system of racism. Uh, and stuff. Of course, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so I, I think it's definitely true. I think, but to say what makes it up, I mean, it's very complicated, but I would say mood upbringing the occasion um the people you're the, around maybe the people you're around yeah yeah what about you do you ever feel that people consciously adopt an identity is it something you've ever done yeah definitely i think people mm -hmm. do that i think yeah. um i know from growing up in a small town that was connected to a military base you had a lot of kids at my high school who had they'd lived in germany and, or they were just used to moving around a lot because their parents were in the army. And they would say things like, oh, yeah, I feel like I'm a different person here. Or, you know, when I'm in this place, I'm this is what my personality is like. And now I'm here and it's different. So I think that you adapt to your circumstances and that, you know, you broadly speaking, I think you stay who you are, but you present a, different identities to different people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The situation and the circumstances and that also what's the end goal of the situation? Are you trying to get people to like you? Are you trying to get a job? Are you trying to just fit in? 
So I think the idea of multiple identities and people, it's kind of a, it's a big question, but. Yeah. I, I used to think of your, your identity as the way that you confront the reality that you're in at that moment. Maybe. Mm, that's a good way to think of it. Yeah, of course. And I think things like language, of course, you can see it in this book as she, she moves between two countries. She has a slightly different identity in both countries, doesn't she? Yeah. Yeah. And you bring yeah. up language. That's a good point as well. Cause I think, you know, from, dealing with students a lot so we teach students who speak different languages i believe you've tried to learn a language before or you do know another language don't you i wouldn't go as far as to say i know (laughs) it (laughs) but um yeah i tried yeah yeah do you think that in spanish you have a different identity or personality than you would in like your english identity or your identity when you live in a different country? Because we both lived in different countries. Do you think that? Because I, I think that's true of me. Yeah, I think that, no, in Spanish, I don't think I do really have a different identity, to be honest. But I don't, maybe I'm not good enough at it, because I, I certainly wasn't that great. Um, but maybe if I got better and then went to live in a Spanish-speaking country, mm-hmm. maybe my identity would be different. I think living abroad, I think you are kind of defined by outside of them, I think. Yeah. So I've, yeah, I've lived abroad and the first thing about you when you're there is where you're from more than anything. So that's oh. how people identify you. And I, I found that quite comforting and comfortable. Your role like, is carved out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You don't, you don't really have to assert it. And I, I found that quite relaxing really for me. I know some people maybe don't like it and they want to kind of assimilate a bit more, but uh-huh. I, I was, I was fine with it. Should I read the next, uh, read the summary of the next part of the book? Yep, let's carry on. Okay, quite a short part. So in the Big Apple, uh, that's New York (laughs) to you and I, in case you didn't know, uh, Martina is a university professor teaching European history, a job she mostly feels that she fakes her way through. And she livens up by teaching classes such as sin in Greco-Roman culture and Catholic ethics and capitalism. Mm. About, about her job, she states at one point, sometimes I felt like I was walking dangerously close to the brink of nonsense. On the other hand, it seemed pointless to revisit the same concepts that had been agreed on for ages. How could I, in all decency, stand at a lecture to repeat at $100 an hour that I'm against war, racism, exploitation? Who would ever assert the contrary? I'd feel as if I was stealing my salary, babbling such platitudes. I'd rather explore logical quicksand. <laughs> okay, so I have a question for you as well. Yeah. Uh, we have kind of revealed exclusively in this episode that we both have taught. So how do you feel about uh, Martina's attitude to teaching? I like it. <laughs> Well, she's a a university professor who doesn't quite know how she got there. And she is very aware that as soon as the students stop enrolling in the school, her department could just like close. And I think she's so bored with European history. I think in the book, she says, this wasn't my first choice. So I don't know what she studied at university specifically, Mm. but she stuck with that. It could just be she's Italian in New York. Mm -hmm. So they're like, oh, you're qualified, teach this. And instead of just doing like, okay, this is the revolt of whatever the fuck in 1700s or something, she just decides to do Catholic ethics and capitalism and really salacious sort of things to draw students in and uh, just kind of goes on. 
at them for a little while about just off the top of her head about whatever she seems to think about. And she, it's funny that the students just kind of have to write down everything that she says. Not the effect, the most effective way of teaching, but it would get people to see things in a different way. And it's certainly a bit more fun than uh, just doing your, your typical European history class, I think. What about yeah, you? It gets, gets them to pay attention, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, one, one thing that we haven't said is the book is sort of addressed to her students isn't it every, every yes. time again she she slips into the second person and says as you know and it's clear that she's talking to her yeah her students. or she'll say like when she got back from Italy she said oh some of you visited me in my office when I got back so yeah, it's exactly, very clear yeah. she's at work and it's her students yeah so maybe it's, a, it's I don't know maybe I missed something but it's supposed to be a lecture itself the book mm, I don't know. yeah you're right yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, for their attitude well I think one thing that people don't say about teaching quite a lot is you kind of are repeating platitudes or things which are true. I mean, I'm, I'm doing air quotes here, but with, with the word true. Yeah. Um, and that's just something that you have to do and kind of get used to. And it can feel a bit tiresome at times, I guess. But if you're teaching young people, I think maybe telling them that war, racism and exploitation are, are bad things isn't isn't something you should assume that they know because it's it, they are things that exist so they're obviously still happening uh-huh. in the world so i think highlighting them and highlighting where they ca- came from in the past and are coming from now is probably quite important rather than just saying i'm babbling platitudes so yeah. i don't really agree with her i have to say i think that's mm. your job and if you're getting paid a hundred dollars an hour then um suck it up is what i think yeah fair enough yep. i mean yeah. Yeah, I think Martina, as a person, she's just an intellectual, isn't she? And I think yeah, she just yeah, assumes that her students um, are kind of with it enough and she doesn't really have time. It, mm. She just strikes me as a person who doesn't really have time for people who have very like closed-minded views and she doesn't mm. really entertain them. But unfortunately, she does the thing where she just says, nope, it's wrong. I'm not even going to talk about it. I'm not even going to mention it. And I, yeah, I don't think that's quite the way to deal with stuff when you don't believe that you're right. No, neither do I. I think it's also a a dangerous assumption of like liberal people that they assume that everyone around them is liberal because they're so sure that they're right. And Mm -hmm. even if you are kind of correct, again, I'm doing air quotes in your beliefs, you can't just assume that everyone agrees with you because of that. Exactly. Yeah. So, no, I don't. I don't like her attitude to some. To some. I like her a lot, but I don't like that. If you were observing her lessons, would you <laughs> have a bunch of red marks all over your notes? Like we're talking about this later. Well, I don't know. I mean, her lessons on whatever she's teaching. What is it? Sin in Greco-Roman culture and Catholic eth- ethics and capitalism. They still sound like good lessons to me. Yeah. But that's that's not something I would I would uh, have a problem with. That sounds good. Do you want to continue with the plot? Yeah. Aside from her work, Martina divides her time between her trendy apartment, hanging out with her neighbor, Jerry, her fitness routine at the gym, a new puppy she found that she's constantly trying to give away, and pursuits of gastronomy, food being a very central theme in the book. So wine, aromatic herbs, herbs, excuse me, tagliatelle, Wild mushrooms, buttery lobster, americone. Is that how you say that? Sounds right to me. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'll, you're, I defer to you because I have no knowledge of Italian. Ever. 
Yeah, I think Americano, yeah, I think. She talks about apple pie, sturgeon pate, asparagus souffle, artichokes a la guidia. Guidia? Yeah, I think some guidia. There's probably, if we have anyone listening in Italy at the moment, they're probably like shouting at their phone or wherever they're listening. Yeah, so sorry. How do you say sorry in Italian? Uh, me, me dispiace. I think that okay. that might that might be excuse me, but that'll probably get you get you through. <laughs> okay. And uh, also risotto alla milanese. Milanese. Mm-hmm. They all feature along with her critiques of the bastardized American versions of them. She has to eat <laughs> at different points. <laughs> so yeah, she's a foodie. Oh yes, she's not a nice is. foodie either. No. But she's Italian, so you know, fair. I'm saying nothing at that point. I'm not, right. I, don't, I don't think we can afford to offend any more countries. Can we? Okay. Uh, joining her on these culinary expeditions is a famous Italian professor named Sebastiano Serignola, who wines and dines her at various expensive restaurants around Manhattan, which is so cool, while building up to an eventual business proposal that he avoids asking directly, but instead takes the time to listen to her philosophical thoughts on life and identity, including her work with the machine. Which I wonder if that's just a cultural thing because Americans would not have time for that. He invites her to dinner the first time and it takes him like eight dinners with her to actually tell her what he's gotten in touch with her for. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? it takes and she a long seems to time. not give a shit. She's just like, cool, okay, and she'll keep going to dinners with him. I guess he's just paying for really. He picks her up in a limo and takes yeah, her to she, nice places. So she she seems to be sort of patiently waiting him out, doesn't she? I don't yeah. I don't get the feeling that she's just going for the food because she moans about the food at, at different points. Yeah, but she seems to think there might be something life changing that he's going to offer her. I think, and she's prepared to wait. That's the sense I got. Mm-hmm. And he's very patient with her as well, because she just launches into her things about multiple consciousnesses and the machine, which yeah, 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 I think yeah. he's like, oh, what? But he <laughs> deals with that quite well. Yes, Keeps taking he her out. But I think he she's also it. meant to be quite pretty. Yes. Yeah. Also, she gripes a lot about American culture in this book, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, she does. Yeah. I'm going to page 115 at the end because there's an example of all of these things summarized uh, in a nutshell here. She says, I won't call my children Dexter, Savile, or Kenneth. I won't leave a homeless man to die alone on a sidewalk. Nothing will convince me that capital punishment is necessary. I won't ever believe a bidet is an unbecoming fixture. I'll go on loving this country and I'll go on being in part an outsider. So there are all these little moments in the book where she comes face to face with aspects of American culture that she goes against. And it, it, I quite like that about her, actually. That she's, yeah. uh, the thing about the bidet is so funny. She's like, do yes. people want to just believe that they don't have genitals? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody yeah. wants to have a bidet. That would be awesome. I'd love to have a bidet in the house. It'd be so great. Bidets are, yeah. they're, they're in Asia. We had one in Kuala Lumpur when we lived there. Okay. You're a fan of a bidet then? Oh, they're great. What you can do on a hot day if you don't want to commit to a whole shower is yeah. just turn on the bidet. The water just shoots straight up. Mm-hmm. You can make it go really high and then you just lean over and like wash your pits. And then can't you just you're good. do that in a shower? Yeah, but you waste a bunch of water in the shower. 
bidets are they're environmentally friendly okay all right so, if you uh, have a bidet tell us how what you use it for and if you like it and if you agree but <laughs> yes yes what's our email address again how's the water podcast at gmail.com yeah okay so we we look forward to your bidet related emails thank you just yeah. sub, just put in the title bidet bidet and we'll Please. we'll read we'll read them out in a future episode also on page 69 she makes fun of american accents yeah. which i guess think about she's in new york it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can you please read this? So you you want me to do an American accent? She phonetically kind of puts it there. Still, you I <laughs> think you're still a bit close. Okay. You I might I might insist on this being edited out. And okay. So she says, I like that accent much more than yours. Believe me, I can't stand this book, as you said yesterday. I agree. Essentially, I too, my dear, consider that book a bore. But that meowing, so she's called, she calls like an American, a New York, is it a New York accent that she's saying this about? Yeah, yeah, because I don't say yeah. buck. No. I can't stand this buck like that. There you go. Yeah. And it actually yeah. looks like buck, like B U C K, she's actually put it. Which yeah, is yeah, yeah. So, yeah, she's not a fan of the, uh, of the accent that surrounds her. No, she's not. What do you think about the way that she goes on about kind of American culture and, and the foods that we eat and, different things that we say and the things we name our kids Ugh. i think that might be more about like english culture than american specifically because yeah possibly um well i kind of get it i think i think when you are abroad that you do things can annoy you about a foreign country um sometimes quite unreasonably and i think that's kind of what's happening there complaining about accents and uh, the treatment of of people that you see around you when it doesn't quite match with what you're used to I think that's probably quite a normal thing mm -hmm. as well but at the same time I think I think those are quite cheap shots to make having a go at people's accents and you know that kind of thing and oh they have capital punishment here I don't like it and there's part of me when people are like this as well no one's making you stay there if you don't like it then don't stay so I felt quite defensive on the part of, of your country <laughs> at you. times. How did you feel about it? I mean, did you get defensive? No, no, not really. Because I think I'm aware that American culture, when you're outside of American culture, there's a lot of stuff about it that can seem really cool. Yeah. And it's all pop culture and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But then when you're yeah. actually in it and you're living there, there's a lot of stuff that isn't very nice. For example, yeah, yeah. the whole capital punishment thing. Everybody seems mm -hmm. to be really gung-ho about that. Or, you know, she, at one point, yeah, she sees a homeless person on the street. And mm. he's like, I think he's just really drunk or something, isn't he? Um, yeah. Does but, she, she really, she tries to help. She tries to get help for him, doesn't she? Yeah. And like everybody uh, yeah. on the street, because it's New York. So it's a big city. And I get, I get it being in a big city. Because I imagine people in London would be the same way. You're just like, I don't want to get involved. I don't have the time for this. He's just a bum on the street, whatever. But she tries to get involved and actually calls an ambulance for him and is very helpful. And the ambulance, I think all the people she tries to stop don't help, do they really? But the people, the ambulance workers, I guess you call them, I think they do help, don't they? Well, he away. leaves. So mm. she course, she goes yeah, in to find right, a phone. Yeah. And when she, because this is like pre cell phone, this is like 1999 New York City, mm -hmm. pre 9 11 yep. New York City. And mm -hmm. she goes 
somewhere to go find a phone to call 911. And then when she comes out, the guy's gone. So she waits for 911 and the ambulance gets there. And she says, sorry, he, he left. And they said, oh, we're happy that you called. We'd rather people call. Yeah, that's right. You're right. Then, you know, yeah, we're, we'd rather people call than just leave someone to die basically on the off chance that they're dying. So it doesn't say great things about Americans, uh, but I think we are a country of individuals in yes. a lot of senses. We're very much out for like me and mine kind of attitude, mm-hmm. I suppose. Yeah, I think yeah. that can be definitely highlighted in a lot of different ways at this current moment. Yeah. So I didn't really take offense to anything that she had said because of coming to that kind of culture, I think, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's an interesting uh, point of view. Should I continue with the plot? Okay, let's keep going because we're okay. we're really more than halfway done with this book at this point. Yeah, we are, aren't we? We're, we're motoring through. Mm-hmm. Okay. At the same time as these expensive dinners with the professor, Martina is on the hunt for the matriarch of the Scalucci family. Marta, uh, this is the matriarch, who happens to be her first love, Constantino's mother. They moved to New York City in their 70s. And when Martina graduated from the University of Pisa, much like the author, and moved there too as a newly divorced woman, she never felt the need to get back in touch. But in light of this new, I'm possibly innately left-handed suspicion, she's interested in speaking to Marta Scalucci because she was a friend of her mother's and would remember Martina as a toddler. Her quest takes her all around the city as she reconstructs Marta's last known movements over 20 years before, which leads her to the president of a property management group, Kevin Shell. Mr. Shell breaks the news to her that Marta passed away and she's filled with regret that due to a desire to begin again in America, she never went to the trouble to maintain ties with the only other family intimately connected to her childhood, her hometown and her cultural traditions. Mm. We later find out that Kevin Shell is actually Costantino. (gasps) Yeah, it's a big reveal. Yeah, big big twist. (laughs) Yeah, who Americanized his name when he moved to New York City and is essentially living out the American dream after 25 years of hard work. He reveals he has always kept up with the news of her and her family, but he stayed away to distance himself from sad memories of the past. He's also selling his shares in the property management group and moving back to Italy to retire, so he won't be in America much longer. The two of them spend an awkward evening together, and with this new connection that has time jumped almost three decades how much they've experienced, the differences in their appearances, etc. She is now enticed by a new possibility. If Professor Serignola offers her a job back in Italy, coupled with Costantino being there too, she will have two important reasons to accept and move back to her home country. Yes. Yeah, it's quite interesting, isn't it? The when they get back together, the, the chemistry from years ago, and it's clear that there, there was a lot of that when they were both young, Costantino and Martina, but uh-huh. it's kind of not quite the same. It's kind of faded, quite, hasn't it, quite a lot? And they're quite awkward with each other as adults. Um, yeah. Has that, has that ever happened to you? Have you ever seen someone you hadn't seen in a long time and used to get on well with? And it was, well, was it very, was it the same or was it very different? Yeah. Um, I feel a lot like that when I go back home um, mm-hmm. or with like people who I knew from like high school and stuff like that, who I remember having such great times with. And then you get back and see them again just to like meet up and to, you know, and it's, it's not 
the same. It, you know, when you hear people talk about, oh, it was like it never, there was no time that ever passed. I've never really gotten that with people. Uh, to me, it seems very clear, like, okay, we're all in different air pla- you know, places now. Uh, it's even been to the point, I think, with some people where they've showed me, oh, look, you wrote in my my yearbook or my thing. And look what you wrote that we had this joke all the time. Ha ha ha. And I just like, I forgot all about that. I didn't even remember. Did I write that? Yeah. And it, it'll be like a long, heartfelt thing. Yeah, I think I really relate to to this here. They were really young in this when they were close. And it's yeah. been 25 yeah. years so that's a lifetime of stuff. She's gotten, she's been married already as well and divorced. And she's, she and him both have made a big effort to keep Italy in the past and a lot of memories mm-hmm. of Italy in the past and the people that they used to know, oh, you know, at a distance. So it's, it's not surprising that they had uh, a, a bit of a difficult time getting used to each other again. Has that ever happened to you? Yeah, I could think of like specific th- things. I, there was a there was a, someone I was quite good friends with who was in my sort of class at school, and then once we left, I didn't see him again for a number of years. And then mm. I met up. We had like a uh, a friend of mine had stayed in touch with him more than I had, or had got back in touch with him, I think. And then we met up to go to the cinema. It was about six or seven years after school. And yeah, I remember it being a little bit kind of awkward. Yeah, uh-huh. him sort of asking questions about like a, a relationship I was in and stuff, and me feel I was feeling a little bit. Well, you know, I don't, I don't really know you anymore. I don't really want to go into that. And kind of having yeah. to a little, a little bit to be kind of polite, but sort of straight batting his questions a bit like you would with someone that you don't know so well. Uh-huh. Um, and then I did see him again a, a number of years later. Um, and yeah, that was slightly better, actually. Um, and yeah, we had quite a nice time. But that was over a decade ago, and I haven't seen him since. So um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think things do change, especially when uh, it was someone you knew as a child or a teenager, and then you're seeing them again as an adult, and you haven't maintained any kind of connection, because you're, you're a different person when you're an adult, aren't you? Talking about sort of different identities. Yeah, and do you think that your identity changes with age, too, really? Or oh. do you think that you're always kind of the yeah. same person? Sometimes, you know, if you go back through Facebook, and you look at old shit that you used to write, I look at that, and I'm like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> it's pretty much the same. Yeah, I haven't changed yeah. all that much. But at the same time, I've done quite a bit more and I've um, had a lot more life experience. So maybe there is, I mean, it goes against the multiple identities thing, doesn't it? But maybe yeah, there is yeah. some kind of essentialist core that stays the same. I don't, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting thought. But yeah, your identity does change as you, as you get older. People just look at you in a different way if, you, if you're um, older and that affects your identity because part of our identity is defined by other people, isn't it? Yeah. So, totally. Uh, so yeah, I think it does alter and evolve. Maybe not for the better, but but it definitely does change. Shall I carry on with the ending of the book? Yeah, tell us how the book finishes. All right. So we've left off where she's got this big dilemma. She could either go back to Italy um, or stay in New York. In the midst of this dilemma, the puppy she's taken in completely erases all of her recorded dreams on the machine. Two years worth of dreaming. Yeah, it's all gone. Yeah. That would suck. And uh, her puppy does it. The puppy she doesn't even want. 
yes and it's all it's all gone her project is ruined yeah her whole all her experiments and everything are gone she yeah. wonders if the work she was attempting was just a spinster's project to alleviate loneliness and to feel a sense of purpose she talks over her feelings with jerry you know the roommate not the roommate the neighbor yeah the guy that shares the flat quite close to her yeah yeah she talks to him a bit he he hooked her up with uh kevin shell AKA yeah, yeah, he does, Italian he? hunk yeah. ex-lover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So, and she tries to pawn the puppy off on him too. And he's like, no, thanks. He's but got a very fixed routine. Hasn't he? Uh, he Jerry? looks like Cary Grant, apparently. That's what yeah, she says. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway. So she talks over her feelings with Jerry. Like, should I, should I not? Blah, blah. They sleep together. <laughs> Just like, whoa, oh. to move her past an emotional block to show her that, she can have intimacy with someone whom she loves and admires, which is something she hasn't done really since Costantino moved away mm-hmm. in her youth, which is like, well, that's one way to do it, I guess. Yep. With your Cary Grant looking neighbor. During her last dinner with Professor Serignola, he finally offers her a job as a cultural consultant to the chief of state, which is a big deal. Mm. which she denies on the grounds that his party's ideology clashes with her political beliefs. At the end of the book, she concludes that her identity as an Italian immigrant in America and the unnaturalness of living there does not have to be at odds with her past and that all the different identities that exist in her can coexist and balance her out in a fulfilling way. She decides to stay in America to explore what she can achieve and to keep the puppy. Just like, cool, she keeps the puppy. And to attempt a long distance relationship with Costantino. And in this way, she can have everything she wants in both worlds. Yeah, one foot in each camp. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's a really nice ending, I think, to a nice short little book. Yeah, it's a happy a ending. It's a happy ending, isn't it? Yeah, so I have a one last little question. Go ahead. How do you feel that you have the erasure of her dreams, her reunification with Costantino, she got the puppy, all these things that kind of happened to her normal life? Mm. You know what I mean? How do you think they helped her to be at peace with the past and move forward towards acceptance of herself and her happiness? Uh, Yeah, a lot. I think letting go of the dreams seemed to be the project the dream project should i say seemed mm-hmm. to be a very big sort of step it, it yeah. she doesn't seem that bothered really when it happens no, she almost, doesn't yeah she, no. it's almost like oh i'm letting go of this now and it, it's gone um, mm-hmm. and that, that kind of helps her as somebody himself who survived a survived that's the, that's definitely the wrong word to use who <laughs> enjoyed a long distance relationship with the person that i'm with now yeah, yeah. now um, i know that it definitely can work i don't know how long for though uh-huh. uh, to be honest i mean i think it helped my relationship early on it really kind of solidified it so i think i think it can be a big uh, a big factor mm-hmm. but i don't know how long they could keep it up for to be honest with her mm-hmm. and i think get, getting the puppy is another 
it's sort of acceptance isn't it it's similar to letting go of the dreams so she doesn't really want the puppy even though she quite likes it but it's it's <laughs> it's kind of symbolic the puppy's symbolic of america it's, isn't it there's yeah. this amazing part in yeah. the so she takes the puppy home and she puts a notice for it in the laundry room like the communal yeah. space it's like puppy for sale or puppy to needs a home and then he does something cute later on in the book and she takes a picture of it. She says, I ran for my camera. Mm-hmm. And you think, I, I was like, oh, she's coming to really like the puppy. And what she does is she takes a picture of the puppy and then she runs down to the notice and writes a note with the picture and says, sweet, cute puppy. So she yes. <laughs> modifies her original post with a yeah. picture of him. Like, let's really get rid of him with this. Yeah, It's this really great- funny. It's a great picture that all appeals to people. <laughs> she's but just it doesn't, not doesn't attached to him at all. No. No. Yeah. No. It's it's she's quite sort of weirdly cynical, isn't she? She's very sort yeah. of atomized. Um, even like she plays bridge on her own. Like, is it every day? She insists every on morning. Bridge and, yeah, yeah. And I think all of these things, letting go of the dreams, the beginning of a possible relationship, which we hope will be successful, and I believe can be, mm-hmm. uh, and getting a puppy, it's all part of letting go of this kind of atomized, separate um, existence that she has in, in America. And um, yeah, hopefully, I think that might lead her, maybe not to happiness, but to some kind of contentment, possibly. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think mm-hmm. the point about the eraser of her dreams, her getting the puppy, starting a new relationship, it's all about letting things go and letting things in at the same time, mm. which is so important, mm-hmm. I think, when you want to feel settled somewhere. Um, what I thought was really nice as well throughout the book, while she's on this little quest to find, is it Marta Scalucci? Mm-hmm. Yep. Constantino's yeah. mother mm-hmm. she's looking for her all around New York and there are so many points in the book where she says she's like running around Manhattan and running around New York City and she's like oh I've lived here for 18 years I've never been here I've never seen the Statue of Liberty and she's going to all these different places and rediscovering New York all yeah. over again not even rediscovering like discovering yeah yeah, yeah. She's lived there for so long yeah yeah and that's so true i mean you know there you can live in a place or in a big city or your own country and there's just places that you never really go and don't never really Mm. experience and i think part of this little story aside from all the other stuff is just her kind of finding a new love for that that environment so i quite i quite liked that little aspect of it yeah in the end maybe it'll just make the the next the second half of her life because she's about, what, 42, 43 in this-ish? Yeah. Or something yeah. like that. So, um, you know, you can go through the next part of your life and live in an, in a completely different way. Yes, and, yeah. That's that's kind of what we hope, isn't it? Yeah. So um, I thought that was a great ending. And, and man, for a tiny little book, it, it really goes through a nice little arc with all that yeah. stuff. So. It does, yeah. I'm kind of realizing a lot of that as we've been speaking about it. If I'm yeah, honest. yeah, it's pretty heavy. This mm. book and 100, yeah. what 118 pages or so. She she really wrote uh, a really it was so detailed but so concise at the same time. Yeah, this whole a whole yeah. life of a person. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. With the way it flashes backwards and forwards. Yeah, it's way. great. Yeah. Before I do the quote, I have a little fun question for you. 
that's okay. Yeah. So we just discussed how um, Martina had lived in New York for a long time. Did you say like, was it 18 years or something? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and she had never been to see the Statue of Liberty. So have you ever done that? Have you ever been to somewhere with a very famous landmark and you've never bothered to go and see it? Ooh, that's a good question. Yeah, well, I mean, we live here in the UK and there are a lot mm -hmm. of really famous places in the UK I've never seen. So like, I've never been to Stonehenge. And okay. when a lot of people think of the UK, they think of Stonehenge as like the typical mm -hmm. kind of place to be. Where else? What about in my own country? I've seen pretty much all the important places. <laughs> I'm pretty well traveled and... Uh, <laughs> done in my most American accent ever. Because um, I've seen, I've been to DC quite a few times. I've been to Florida. I've been to New York. I've been to California. I've been to the Grand Canyon. What about you? What about you? Uh, I wasn't really thinking of countries that I'd visited because there'll definitely be places within countries that I've been on holiday that I've never been to. I was thinking more of cities i can't oh. nothing, nowhere like really springs to mind i mean i was in japan and i never went to mount fuji even though i've seen it so uh -huh. you can see it you can see it from tokyo on a clear day um, and i think i went past it on a train as well but i never went there to the top of it i don't know about yeah i mean certainly i've been to america as well a few times but there's loads of places i mean i've never been to new york no but like i've been to london and i've never I've never, I've seen like the eye and the shard and stuff. But I've never been in those places. And I've never. Uh, no, I've never been in a shard. Can you go in the shard? Or are you supposed yeah, to? It's extremely expensive though to go. <laughs> I don't know if you can just go in it, but you can, you can go to, I don't know the top, but you can, there's a view. Like an platform. observation deck. Yeah. Yeah. But it's really, really expensive. Mm, well, like so, I've been to New York. I've never been to the Empire State Building. Really? Again, because uh, it's ridiculously expensive to get up there. But have you been outside it though and seen it? Uh, I think so. Must have. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I think that's what I mean, really. I mean, I don't think you always have to go, go <laughs> well, in the place. Well, I've experienced it. Standing <laughs> yeah. right outside. This is fine. Yeah. Well, Save your money. Yeah. I mean, the, the best part of a lot of these buildings is the is the outside isn't it did you go to trump tower i mean that's the most notable no view no i wouldn't have cared as much and the last no. time the last time i was there was with ryan before we got married uh and we didn't have that much money so we just mm -hmm. kind of spent a lot of time walking around like places we didn't go in that many places yeah, so yeah. if i went back there's a lot of landmarks i'd like to go like the the moma museum yes, of modern of course, art yeah, that yeah. would be fantastic we didn't uh go there though I actually wonder if that's free. We just didn't know. <laughs> we really should have researched New York. Yeah, it's worth checking out. It's just it? like the Brooklyn Bridge and uh, the the ferry to some island, uh, the Staten Island Ferry, go there and mm -hmm. back. And um, yeah, go to Times Square and all those fun places. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, Hudson River, things like that. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. I like that question. It is. It probably get most of that will probably get edited out, I think. <laughs> it's okay. Okay, should I finish with a final quote from the book? Yeah, go on. 
Okay, so I'm going to read. This is these are the last um, three paragraphs of the book, and this is kind of where Martina has accepted her life, her kind of slightly fragmented life in New York as an Italian. And if it's hard to forget Italy, no one, fortunately, will compel me to. And if it's hard to love a man, it's certainly easy to love a dog. So why not begin with this foundling fate has sent me? Then I'll try loving Costantino again and making him love me on this or that side of the Atlantic, or a little here and a little there. After all, what's nine hours flight time? And one sure thing, God willing, this will be my last left-handed dream. The last time I'll be wondering whether I am on this or that side of the mirror, whether I'm petting my dog with my right or left hand. And to this little trusting creature, I'll say with complete naturaleza, come boy, I'm going to call you Bonzo and I will have this dog, this life and everything else, including Costantino and my two countries. And now that's decided. I turned the key, open the door, smell the basil on my windowsill and I'm home. That's lovely. Yeah, a nice, as we always say, that's a very nice finish to the book. Yeah, couldn't have finished any other way, really. I like that she was so into the dog by the end. Yes, and she's given it a name, Bonzo. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I think that's time for us to finish, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Thank you guys for hanging out with us while we got into a lot of pretty deep stuff, but we hope that you enjoyed it. Yep, we really hope you did. And we'll see you next time with a new book. Yep, so. It's uh, Arrivederci from me. Arrivederci, goodbye.